welcome to Bookish at Bethel. This is Carrie Peffley. I'm in the philosophy department at Bethel. And I'm Dr. Koisha. I'm in the history department at Bethel. And this week, we're going to be joined by Dr. Mark Bruce from the English department. He is our resident medievalist, but he's going to be talking to us today about Thucydides and some connections to Greek history, Greek art, Greek philosophy, uh, Greek literature. And he will mention schlong, so just wait for that. Well, Dr. Mark Bruce... English department. We have brought you in to talk a little bit about Thucydides, and we just realized that the full title of our book is On Justice, Power, and Human Nature. And for the listeners out there who have not yet had a chance to read it or have forgotten what they did read, we're wondering if you could start off just by highlights of the book. What is this book about? Wow. um, The answer will differ depending on who you ask. Okay. (laughs) But mainly it's, um, uh, these are excerpts from a book called The History of the Peloponnesian Wars. And uh, the main subject matter, I guess, is uh, a military, long drawn out military conflict that happens between uh, the city state of Athens and its allies and the city state of Sparta and its allies. Fantastic. And I know... Spoiler alert, but who who wins? Nobody. <laughs> <laughs> um, and what and, and so what do you mean by that? <laughs> I, I mean, I think at least Thucydides perspective is that um, no one really emerges from this either unscathed mm-hmm. or with clean hands. Um, and um, I mean, the Athenians lose by the end. Sure. Um, but he does not treat this as a conflict that's been good for anybody. It's just basically a disaster all around. Indeed. Mm-hmm. In Professor Larson's discussion of Thucydides in class on Wednesday, she ended up talking about the fact that this, even, even though this book is a history, it reads a little bit more like a play. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I wondered if if you sort of have thoughts on that. Well, yeah. I mean, history is a term that we have a lot of sort of ingrained associations with, right? Um, and uh, I know uh, Dr. Larson mentioned that this is sometimes called, or Thucydides is sometimes called the first modern historian. Right. Um, in some ways, I think that might be, It's right in some ways, uh, at least in the sense that he's not interested in um, supernatural explanations for things. You don't have somebody, you know, um, kissing Athena's butt. So she comes and, you know, (laughs) sends a sea monster (laughs) off somebody or, you know, you don't have those kinds of, you know, he's interested in more sort of psychological and cultural reasons for why things are going on. Um, so in that sense, yeah, I mean, he's not being supernatural. Well, right? and if I could just interject, because I, I can't think about the father of history without thinking about Kevin Craig, who taught in the history department forever oh, yeah. and ever. And of course, for him, the father of history was Herodotus, mm. who is known for being a complete gossip. And that's right. another way, right, <laughs> that Thucydides tries to distinguish himself from her, you know other kinds of history. It's not just that it's not mythology, but he's also trying not to just be, here's what everybody in all these other places said about this, that, and the other. So there's that too, but... Yeah, I mean, so yeah, he's not, he doesn't like hearsay. Right. Even though he uses it all the time. Um, uh, 
But at the same time, he's crafting something. You know, I'm a literature guy. Right. So he's crafting something that, to me, has a lot of the characteristics of a literary narrative mm-hmm. uh, and a play in that, you know, it, it's I don't want to make the mistake of and or have others make the mistake of thinking that because he's interested in sort of more naturalistic kinds of explanations for things that he's being somehow objective uh, in a modern sense. Right. Um, He's got an attitude about what's going on. He's got attitudes about the people that he's talking about. He rarely, you know, comes out with um, really explicit judgments, uh, although sometimes he'll sneak them in. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, But he'll make it clear how he feels and how he wants us to feel about an event or a person or a speech. Uh, just by sort of manipulating the content uh, and the description and even by uh, simply showing us, uh, for instance, something one person will say at one time and then say the exact opposite somewhat later. Right. <laughs> you know, think, you know, he does a lot of that juxtaposition stuff. So, um, so yeah, and it does have kind of a, a, a tragic plot Right. right. So uh, we can think about this in terms of the Bacchae quite a bit um, because it does have that sense of, you know, hubris in it. Sure. So Athens kind of becomes the uh, tragic hero. Um, Are you saying Athens is Pentheus? In, in kind of. A little bit. Okay. Yeah. All right. All right. And, and I think you could work it the other way, too. Sure. Kind of say Pentheus is Athens. Oh. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, they have those parallels, right? Okay. This overreach um, that ultimately they just can't maintain and right. things start to break down. Um, so uh, and then at and, and then we watch, you know, as we go from these high minded ideals in Pericles's first speech right. all the way to, you know, we're in Sicily getting our butts kicked. Right. Right. Uh, and saying and doing all the things that are the opposite of all the things we said and we're going to do earlier. <laughs> right. Well, and I couldn't help snicker when Dr. Larson was talking about how we start with Pericles, who's got, again, as you said, a very noble sense of what is Athens and why is Athens worth dying for mm-hmm. to Alcibiades, who, I mean, I just imagine him with long flowing hair and uh, lots of horses that he keeps, um, well... He's like, what's his name? Richard Branson? Oh, maybe. (laughs) But yeah, just like the, oh, and you can, you can almost, I mean, I feel like I can hear Thucydides just, just moaning as he is uh, channeling Alcibiades for that last speech. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. I was just teaching this morning uh, Plato's Symposium in my ancient philosophy class. And in the symposium, Alcibiades comes into the, the room roaring drunk oh um and just takes over like takes over the entire room takes over the entire conversation and the character socrates has to sort of pull him back into line so it just seems like everyone thought alcibiades was totally full of himself does he use the adjective tremendous a lot (laughs) probably probably but the thing is and this is why i think thucydides is so interesting is because even though thucydides is dripping with scorn for alcibiades it's actually Alcibiades who is persuasive they go with him and his plan so that's also kind of an interesting kind of statement about well human nature right like Mm -hmm. and we get that through those juxtapositions 
Right. Yeah. So if you had a favorite speech or a favorite moment in Thucydides, the part that you love talking about in your small groups or just, you know, over dinner with friends, Mark Bruce, <laughs> um, what is that moment for you in, in the book? Um, I mean, there may be a couple. Okay. So, so one of them is like the most sort of one of the most meaningful and kind of chilling moments yeah. for me. And uh, one of them is kind of more fun, but uh -huh. not without meaning either. Um, but the one that um, always kind of stops me in my tracks, if I can find it here. Yeah, let me just point out for the listeners that Mark Bruce is uh, actually paging through his, his book looking for the quote. So I'm going to tap dance. Uh, yeah, I know I had it. Orally here, here okay, for here a minute. Go. There we go. Here we go. Here we go. Um, so this is... Um, uh, a passage where it's talking actually about a civil war in another city-state, um, but it that has kind of the same function as Thebes does in okay. the Bacchae, where I think he's really commenting on Athens, Sure, but it's such a kind of damning uh, statement that um, he, he's going to say it out loud in relation to someplace else, right? Mm -hmm. um, but uh, so I'll just read a paragraph here. Uh, civil war ran through the cities. Those it struck later heard what the first cities had done and far exceeded them in inventing artful means for attack and bizarre forms of revenge. And they reversed the usual way of using words to evaluate activities. Mm. Ill-considered boldness was counted as loyal manliness. Prudent hesitation was held to be cowardice in disguise mm. and moderation merely the cloak of an unmanly nature. A mind that could grasp the good of the whole was considered wholly lazy. Sudden fury was accepted as part of manly valor, while plotting for one's own security was thought a reasonable excuse for delaying action. A man who started a quarrel was always to be trusted, while one who opposed him was under suspicion. A man who made a plot was intelligent if it happened to succeed, while one who could smell out a plot was deemed even more clever. Anyone who took precautions, however, so as not to need to do either one, had been frightened by the other side, they would say, into subverting his own political party. In brief, a man was praised if he could commit some evil action before anyone else did, or if he could cheer on another person who had never meant to do such a thing. And that's, um, I'm hoping that's your chilling moment, right? That's the okay, chilling, good. Yeah. <laughs> that's good. I mean, kind of interestingly entertaining because of how chilling it is. Yeah. But it's like... Uh, you know, uh, you could find this kind of a lament in like a current editorial, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and and here's Thucydides recognizing this kind of dynamic. Yeah, well, and the passage that you wrote, or did you read it too, um, makes me think of Aristotle on his discussion of virtues mm -hmm. and how it's so important to distinguish the extremes and the mean. And this is definitely, in some ways, a subversion. Of exactly the kind of thing that Aristotle will talk about too, right? Exactly this concern that being moderate is seen as problematic, right? Um, at this right. particular point, there's another point where he says something like, you know, uh, people who were able to look at an issue from all sides were sort of considered weak, whereas those right. who were just completely partisan were, you know, so. Um, I don't know. It seems so like chillingly familiar to me. Well, and especially chillingly, you know, it's chilling too in the Athenian context, just because I'm thinking um, of Wayne Rosa and his discussion of the Parthenon and how important it was to see something from a holistic perspective. Right. So that like you come up upon the Parthenon and it's in the three quarters view 
And yet here in this story, that value has completely been corroded and gone by the wayside. So that was your dark moment. Mm-hmm. Um, you said you had another moment in the Thucydides that you enjoy as well? Yeah, and, and it's an easy one to miss, especially in our volume, okay. because it sort of, um, it, it doesn't actually include the section where this stuff happens. There's just a summary of it. But it's when the Athenians are on their way to attack in Sicily. Okay. And um, there's that bit where Alcibiades gets recalled to Athens to stand trial um, because uh, I think mainly because people have lost confidence in him, but ostensibly it's because of like religious heresy or something. Right. Right. Uh, And they never quite explain what that's about. Sure. Right. Uh, Or what um, precipitated that. Yeah. and I always think that's a fun story to fill in because it's about um, – so for one thing, Alcibiades, because he was this playboy yeah. character, mm-hmm. um, I guess had a reputation for holding things like mock religious rituals. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but then what had happened back in Athens while he was on the ship sailing over to Sicily – uh, was that there are all these statues placed all through the city. Okay. Uh, they're called herms. And a herm is basically a, a square uh, pedestal uh, with a, a bust of Hermes on it, usually, which is why they're called Hermes. Right. Okay. Um, and uh, then uh, other than that, it's just a square pedestal, except at about waist level, there is male genitalia. Sure. So it's a head and a schlong. <laughs> um, and and these are placed all the way through Athens. Partially it's because Hermes is a messenger of the gods, but he also takes care of things like crossroads. Um, so part of it is um, kind of having something that will ward off harm and evil and things like that. Sure. But they also serve practical functions as like signposts uh, and things like this. Okay. Right? Um, so what had actually happened was this heinous act of vandalism. Because, oh of course, the... Um, Anatomy on the front of a herm is presented in its, uh, shall we say, excited state. Oh, my. Uh, (laughs) And what had happened is somebody had gone through Athens and emasculated all the herms. Sure. Right. Sure. (laughs) Uh, Which was considered just an absolutely heinous flagrant violation of, of of piety. One would right? think so. Um, because, I mean, because Athenian religion and civic duty are the same thing. Sure, yes. Um, so somebody going around and vandalizing the mm. herms in that way was just absolutely scandalous. Uh, and that's what precipitated oh. the recall of Alcibiades, or at least okay. it's what was used as the main excuse okay. for it, because they thought he had instigated this. Um, and then, of course, he never actually gets in trouble for it, because the other thing that's easy to miss is that um, he escapes on the way back and um, goes to Sparta. Oh. And the Spartans say, oh, right. wait, wait a minute, we don't like you. You're the Athenian general. And he says, well, yeah, but how about if I show you how to beat right. my own army? Right. And they're like, buddy, come on in. <laughs> um <laughs> Um, so then he becomes instrumental in the ultimate defeat of 
Athens. So uh, talk about an opportunist, right? Yeah. Well, no wonder Thucydides didn't like him, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, so we have students write a paper about Thucydides. And part of our idea in having them write a paper about Thucydides is that we do, in fact, get all of these speeches. Mm-hmm. And one of our premises, in humanities at least, is that a good speech is not only a good speech because of its um, sort of oratorical value, but it actually has to have some sort of good content as well. So any tips you might want to relay to our students um, about how to approach such a broad assignment? Um, You're going to have to remind me what the prompt for the assignment was. It's basically... um, Talk about uh, one of the, the speeches and give us uh, your rationale for why Thucydides thinks this is either a good speech or a bad speech. Oh, okay. So, um, I mean, I guess one tip is look for the small cues. Okay. Um, so, if Thucydides has judgments about these people. Yeah. And about the content of what they're saying. And... Uh, he'll never just have a paragraph where he just explains his perspective. Right. Um, because he kind of wants to build it into the speech itself right. to the point that you walk away from the speech with the attitude that he wants you to have. Sure. It. Right. Um, and so watch for the small words. Watch okay. for small adjectives, um, you know, where he says things like, uh, you know, he, he talks about, uh, a group of people at one point doing something that he thinks is bad, and he just right. sneaks in the little phrase, they do something as mobs will do. Right. That's an important uh, <laughs> phrase in Thucydides. Right. Um, so, and, and, you know, it's a blink and you'll miss it phrase, yep. but it's also where he identifies this group of people as a mob. Right. Uh, as opposed to some more polite, organized assembly right Right. um so there's the judgment right right and he sneaks those little things in so you uh you got to read really carefully for those little things that Mm -hmm. point to his judgments yeah and then the other thing is what comes after the speech right um and what does that suggest about uh how thucydides feels about either how sincere the speaker was or how good their ideas were Mm -hmm. sure uh yeah or how effective they were in communicating right. those ideas. Right. right. For sure. So I love the fact that this at the beginning of Humanities, we begin with Plato's Apology and Thucydides and Euripides, and they're all writing kind of around the same time and all also talking about the downfall of Athens and for Thucydides, right, it's about hubris. For Euripides, maybe it's about hubris. Socrates, the character in the Apology, ends up telling us um, that it's all about intellectual virtue, that we, ha- right. we need to have cognitive humility to admit that we're not as great and right. we don't know as much as we think we know. So all of these things are so nicely connected. Are there any other texts from this particular period that you think, you know what, if we could read one more text from this period or study one more work of art what would it be? Well, I mean, if you want another related text, um, the sequel to this is great. Uh, (laughs) What's the sequel? Um, So uh, I think Dr. Larson mentioned the other day that um, Thucydides didn't live long enough to finish the whole 
history, right? Oh. Um, the manuscripts we have literally cut off mid-sentence. I believe the last word is, uh. Okay. Uh, <laughs> um, no, he didn't actually write that out. But you do kind of yeah. get this sense that he's frantically trying to finish his history mm-hmm. and croaks in the middle of a sentence. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, there is another historian that picks up right where Thucydides uh, leaves off. Okay. Um, uh, Xenophon. Okay. Uh, is his name and um, one and there are several books mm-hmm. um, but the um, the really cool one is called the Anabasis which is about um, an Athenian army that gets hired by the brother of the king of Persia mm-hmm. so th- these are Athenian mercenaries mm-hmm. um, they get hired by the brother of the king of Persia to off the king okay because he wants the power uh, while they're on their way deep, deep, deep into Asia Minor um, to do this deed that they've been hired for, the guy who hired them dies. <laughs> um, and it also turns out, kind of like the Sicilian campaign, that um, they don't have uh, the resources and have don't really have supply lines. And so basically this entire big Athenian army finds itself stranded mm-hmm. uh, in hostile territory and they have to kind of make their way back to uh, Athens, back okay. to Greece. Um, and, uh, and of course, what ensues is just fantastic, right? So, But it also picks up on some of those same themes. And Xenophon is as different from Thucydides as Thucydides is from Herodotus. Sure. Um, but it's... Um, but still dealing with similar themes, um, but it's such a cool narrative. Okay. I mean, it's just like this great adventure story of this army off in hostile territory trying to survive and get home. Nice. Yeah. Well, we always ask our guests, um, what's on your nightstand at home? What's your um, read for fun book right now? My read for fun book right now is actually relevant to this. Oh, I wonderful. Wow. I I did not plan this. Okay. Okay. It just happened to. You're just that cool. Pure serendipity. Yeah. Um, but my 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 guilty pleasure fun read right now is a series of books. It's essentially a space opera, but it's the Anabasis it in is. space. Oh wow. Uh, <laughs> so I mean, it's literally about this guy who's a, a respected military commander. Uh, you know, the human race has. Ex- you know, thousands of years ago, expanded sure. into space, and uh, he's known as this very good general and military leader. Mm-hmm. Um, at the end of a battle that he's made a hero for later, he gets placed in some kind of stasis, and they find him and wake him up like a couple of thousand years later or something, at a point where all the sides in this conflict have. Um, become really bad at warfare sure and so he gets resurrected and put in charge again and basically so you've got um the anabasis as you know instead of a greek army stranded in asia minor you've got this fleet of spaceships stranded in hostile space and they have to find their way out fascinating Um, it's it's called the lost fleet series um author's name is uh well, his pseudonym on the books is Jack Campbell. All right. Um, so uh, the first one is called Dauntless. There you go, listeners. But if you want Xenophon in space. There you go. Yeah. Great recommendation. <laughs> Sounds good. Well, our time has come to an end, Carrie. 
So we are bookish at Bethel. Bethel.